Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio and it is a fine well it's fine thursday morning on the time that we're recording this but you will be listening to us live on friday morning now i guess before, um we have a pretty big we have our program is going to be pretty packed this week um so we're going to be playing sort of a number of different sort of pre-recorded content um some of it being produced by some of our green left teams in sydney and brisbane and then um just to kind of make a bit of a plug um, we're actually going to be returning live to air um, next Friday, which is actually going to be quite exciting because it's actually, throughout the whole COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually almost been a year since we've gone um, to a kind of live to air kind of broadcast. Um, so it'll be quite exciting. Um, me and Zane are probably going to be your presenters, and then we might be able to hook in some of our other presenters remotely. Um, but, yeah, before I get into that... Um, I'd like to just acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and that we acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty has never been ceded and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio supports the fight back um, that Aboriginal people have been doing resisting colonialism since um, the first fleet arrived on 1788, January 26. Yeah, nice. Okay. Now, um, just to, I forgot to actually give time to introduce the presenters. So we have myself, Jacob. And me, Chloe. Hello. And me, Zane. Hi. Now, I guess, um, I guess the first kind of story I want to sort of talk about and this is something that has kind of been dominated best uh, kind of headlines, but it has been this whole, those who kind of been following kind of sport or following the AFL have probably been aware about this whole kind of scandal engulfing the, the Collingwood Football Club. And essentially there has been a report, an independent report, um, which basically found that there were many incidences of systematic racism within the club and the report basically found that most of these incidences of racism were, you know, basically were met with defensive reactions, basically refusing to acknowledge any kind of impact of racism on the victims. And I think, you know, I have to give a sort of effort to all the kind of football players, especially the likes of Adam Goods, Joel Wilkinson, uh, Michael Long, Nicky Winmar. They were really the ones who have consistently kind of stood up against racism in the sport um, and spoke out repeatedly, despite, you know, the backlash that they would often receive in the media. And I think this is really, um, really the, the sort of a reason why that this has had, actually had such an impact. Now, of course, everything has been focused on Eddie Maguire, who is 
everyone knows who Eddie Maguire is, the president of the uh, Collingwood Football Club, a big TV personality. And essentially, he has basically been really the perpetrator of, of racism uh, in, this, in this whole story. Um, it all goes back to um, when he referred um, when he referred to um, Adam Goods with a racial slur, and he has been completely defensive, um, pretty much denied all accusations of racism. Uh, he's also gone on about how great Collingwood is, blah blah blah. And in a kind of positive news story that kind of happened that happened on Wednesday. He resigned um, as president of the Collingwood Football Club. But, of course, I guess one of the problems about his resignation is watching his resignation, um, he basically took no responsibility for any of the, of the, of the racism or, or his own racist kind of views and just went on about his achievements. Um, and I think this is really kind of like a classic story um, in Australia it is always it is always the real story is really those who are responsible for perpetuating racism like the likes of Eddie Maguire always escape any real sense of of, of responsibility and I think the media has been pretty terrible on this too where basically they they have been critical of Eddie Maguire but they're not critical they're not criticising him necessarily for being racist. They're actually trying to sort of pass off a lot of his racism as him just being a dumb buffoon or a, just a silly person. Like, basically, they're not actually accurately trying to call him out what is actually racism. And I think it'll, it has been disappointed that um, that apparently... Um, I, haven't, I haven't actually seen the record of this, but this is... Um, has been written up on, I guess, on social media by credible sources and on Twitter. Um, apparently, Daniel Andrews has sort of not has sort of not necessarily come into full defence at Eddie Maguire, but he's sort of basically implied that he will not sign the open letter uh, condemning the Collingwood Football Club for racism, which I think is a bit, yeah, mm. for for someone who's sort of touted as the most progressive premier in history, you would think that something as simple as this would be an easy sort of position to kind of take. But yeah, I think this is just. Um, I think this whole Eddie Maguire kind of um, saga is really, it's just a classic story of the example of how deep racism is um, within, um, within Australia. And it extends to all institutions of life, including, including sports. Yeah. Uh, well said, um, Jacob Maguire. He's a, what, what can I say? He's a sexist. He's a, a racist and nobody should view him as some kind of victim or hero like many media sources are, um, you know, portraying, portraying him as. Uh, you know, he has been the leader, the president of one of the biggest, richest clubs in the AFL. Uh, but this club, Collingwood, you know, it has uh, a history uh, a, 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 and it has had a terrible impact on cultural and, and social issues in the community for years. Um, the, the president before um, Maguire actually took over, his name's McAllister, he, um, he said of Indigenous footballers back in the 90s that as long as they conduct themselves like white people uh, well off the land, everyone will admire and respect them. That's what he had to say about Indigenous footballers back in the 90s. Eddie took over from him, but things didn't really get better. Um, and now, you know, the end of his tenure has has um, 
has as you know at, at the club it doesn't really necessarily mean that Maguire's hateful comments um, will come to an end. Um, you know, all, all the, the things that he said, uh, you know, over the years, he never really apologizes for them. I mean, he says he's sorry, but he never actually tries to improve or educate himself. Um, you know, he's, yeah, I agree that he's, uh, whatever he said in that press conference, he's, he, he just basically defends these actions and gaslights the public. Uh, you know, he says things like, you know, it was taken out of context. He was joking. He was having fun. Um, you know, well, racism is not really fun for people who are the victims of racism, especially Indigenous people like um, Adam Goods and uh, Heredia uh, Lumumba, uh, who have been very uh, vocal and courageous in, in um, talking about the racism that they've faced. Uh, and just like, just to quickly remind people, I mean, I don't know if this is appropriate, but let's not forget Eddie's track record here in 2013, uh, when a Sydney Swans uh, dual brown low medalist, Adam Goods, was called an ape by a 13-year-old in the crowd, um, Maguire did apologize, but he then joked on his radio program later that Goods could be used to promote the film King Kong. Um, again, you know, he apologizes and says things like he was zoned out, he was tired, but then, you know, he incites violence against women. He uh, was, you know, forced to apologize again a few years later when he and other broadcasters joked on his radio show about offering $50,000 to drown Carolyn Wilson, a veteran football writer for The Age. So, I mean, Maguire is a massive hypocrite. He lectures people about social equity and social justice. Uh, but when this Collingwood racism report came out, um, and that was um, Larissa uh, Berendt and Lyndon Coombs, apologize if I pronounce their names incorrectly, but their report into the club's response to racism, that report made world headlines and Maguire just couldn't help himself. He resigned in disgrace. Um, I mean, if anyone was watching his press conference, he was just sweating bullets, uh, but he, he really just did try to spin um, that report by saying, you know, it was a proud and historic day for, for the Collingwood Football Club. Uh, you know, that was a cowardly thing to say. You know, he did have the floor one last, he had one last opportunity to take the attention off himself and focus on why racism is a systemic issue in this country, but he chose not to do that. And yeah, Jacob, you did mention um, the letter um, demanding Eddie Maguire step down. Um, it, that, that letter was specifically from First Nations uh, people and people of colour. And that, I mean, it just has to be, um, it, you know, Daniel Andrews actually did say he was not going to sign that letter. That open letter to Collingwood had been signed by more than 70 people, including federal politicians like Lydia Thorpe from the Greens. Um, uh, so, yeah, as part of that, so I'm, I'm not sure why Daniel Andrews didn't, you know, said he won't be signing that letter. But I mean, I guess um, Eddie Maguire, he is, you know, he's still a journalist. He's a radio presenter. He's a TV host. He's a businessman. He's a, a friend to the rich and the powerful. So this won't exactly be the last of him. You know, we, um, we are happy to see him step down finally. But racism is, you know, it's really normally dealt with in, 
in this country, it's really dealt with in such a casual way. Uh, but when in reality, racism um, and the way we treat indigenous people, it's, it is a national disgrace. And we have a lot of work to do. We have a long way to go. Uh, but Eddie Maguire stepping down um, in disgrace, um, it's, it's a good start. Well, thanks for that. Um, oh, Zane, do you have a comment you want to make quickly? Uh, just to say that um, Eddie Maguire being forced to um, resign early is uh, a sign of changing times. And uh, this would not be happening without the courage and the articulate um, fighting of Heritia Lumumba and I'm conscious of sounding like an idiot in, in saying that a black man speaks good English, but there's so many football players who we've seen interviewed about sport over the years who just give the most inarticulate blah kind of responses. Heritia Lumumba is so articulate in describing the racism that he has faced and the need for cultural change at Collingwood and in the rest of the AFL and is an absolute asset and a fighter to every person of colour playing AFL and to every Aboriginal person in the league. And his courage is is really um, something that I respect greatly in, in facing down these powerful forces who would try and silence him and dismiss him. He stood his ground and deserves a hell of a lot of respect for that. And, um, yeah, I, I just shout out to Hertia Lumumba for standing his ground and, and fighting the long fight. And yeah, it's, uh, it's really impressive the, the, change that has happened so far and I think there is more change to come and his actions can only embolden other people of colour and Aboriginal players in the league and in other sports codes to to also stand their ground and you know people a lot of Collingwood supporters are of course backing Heritia Lumumba and saying look (laughs) Eddie McGuire doesn't speak for us and needs to go this dude is is uh, a scumbag and doesn't represent what you know what we are supporters of this club for. So yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, both um, Zane and Chloe, I think, make very kind of good points. And I guess the last kind of point I want to make, and then we might um, we'll play a quick announcement and move on to another story, is there's been this whole kind of thing being pushed by the right about cancel culture. Um, in some sense, Eddie Maguire has been cancelled by the left, uh, the anti-racist. But actually, in actual fact, because we're, we are living in an unequal system and we're living in capitalism, Eddie Maguire is still going to get a large platform uh, most of the time. He's probably not going to have any consequences uh, for kind of his actions. And because he's still going to enjoy a large platform that most, the majority of ordinary people, especially the players who have been resisting, um, you know, the racism inherent in the sport, um, they're, not, they, they're not necessarily going to get the same level of platform and exposure that someone like Eddie Maguire is going to get. So I think, you know, this is like a partial kind of victory in a sense, because really 
Eddie Maguire still, still as Chloe sort of in, implied, is still going to have a large platform. He still has access to a lot of capital. Um, and in fact, there was this weird sort of push, which has aged a bit badly. There was an article in The Age that basically argued because um, Eddie Maguire's brother is um, is a parliamentarian in politics, he represents the, broad, the seat of Broadmeadows. Um, and of course, he's not a very good MP, I would say, but that's a sort of an, a, a time for another, another um, discussion. And hey, there was this whole push by the age, which I think is um, by this age writer, not necessarily the age, trying to sort of argue that the Labor Party should take Eddie Maguire up and pre-select him for a parliamentary position. And um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, Eddie Maguire would probably fit perfectly with the Liberal Party. Um, probably wouldn't wouldn't be that out of place to the Labor Party. Um, but of course, I'm sure the likes of One Nation and Liberal Party would love to have him as a as a as an elected MP. Because you know they, in in actual fact, actually support a lot of the views that um, Eddie Maguire kind of stands for. Well, Mark Latham used to be in the Labor Party. It's worth remembering. Mm. He led the party to the election in two thousand and four. He's now jumped ship to One Nation. So yeah, I think there's a, Labor was the staunchest defender of the White Australia policy for many years through the middle of the twentieth century. So. Um, yeah, I think uh, Eddie Maguire would very much be at home with the kind of the more backwards elements of the uh, Australian Labor Party. But yeah, what a stupid idea. And uh, it's just like the, it's it's like the opposite of a, a Corbyn or a Sanders figure, like it's just people with peanuts for brains thinking that, Oh, the, what the Australian Labor Party really needs right now is this kind of Donald Trump unifying, you know, racist dickhead figure. Yeah. <laughs> what a dumb idea. Yeah. Well, the good thing is it probably won't, um, it's probably not likely to happen now with everything that's sort of happened with this whole sort of Eddie Maguire scaga. So good mm. riddance. All right. Well, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR, and I'll just go play a quick announcement. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, listeners, you are listening to Being Left Radio, and we're just having both of our, um, all the presenters here, we're just having a bit of a discussion about this whole. Eddie Maguire kind of scandal that has kind of engulfed the mainstream kind of media and basically how he's hasn't taken any kind of real sense of responsibility for the racism uh, that he's perpetrated, um, despite the fact he has resigned as president of the Collingwood Football Club. 
Now, I want to go into sort of another article. And this is sort of raising a bit of, I guess, a critical kind of question. And this is um, going to be an article that will come up in the next issue of Green Left. And it's been, um, and it's asking the question, why isn't Australia producing its own COVID-19 vaccine? And it's sort of, um, Jim McElroy, who is the author of this article, writes here that while Australia, a rich country, is in a fortunate position of being able to provide free vaccinations for most people, the federal um, government has had to compete on the market for them because it no longer has a publicly owned pharmaceutical manufacturer. And it basically goes, recounts, I guess, this history, because I'm sure our listeners are probably not aware that in actually in 1995, we actually had a world-leading government-owned medical research and um, production facility. And this was actually a principal supplier of vaccines and antivenines and the sole manufacturer of blood products. Now, of course, um, this was known as the Commonwealth Serum um, Laboratories, the CSL. And this was actually sold off in 1995 by the federal Labor government under Paul Keating. Now, Jim sort of points out that in the hypothetical scenario that this had stayed in public hands, Australia would have been in a much better position to assign resources to research and produce an effective anti-COVID-19 vaccine. It could even be able to distribute them to our, our neighbours, such as Papua New Guinea, the Pacific Islands, Indonesia and Malaysia. And, of course, at the time, um, at the time of its kind of privatisation, um, CSL indicated would stop producing antivenes necessary to prevent deaths because they were not profitable. And I guess to give a bit of context um, for its history and when it was kind of first established, the CSL was established during World War I in 1916 to re research and produce vital medicines. And some of their achievements include early um, production of insulin for the treatment of Australian diabetes, diabetics, the development of the tenderness vaccine, the development of a combined vaccine for diphtheria, tetanus, and weeping, weeping cough. And of course, the rapid adoption and production of a polio vaccine. And of course, apologies to any medical students who are listening to this. My um, pronunciation of all these medical terms is not necessarily good or perfect. Um, and now, and that, I guess going into sort of the whole consequence, the privatised CSL now boosts boasts that it um, makes more than $8 billion um, in a year in revenue. So, yeah, this is, I think, this is basically an example, I think, of, because basically the current situation with the vaccines is essentially governments are just competing, um, all these sort of market kind of produ producers within the market are basically competing for government kind of contracts. And of course, the um, Scott Morrison government has touted that they've already, um, that they've paid for uh, a particular vaccine that was probably the most promising and probably the most effective out of the war. But it's like, you know, the imagine the type of alternative that could have been, happened if they had actually publicly kind of produced their own um, vaccines. And I think, you know, the argument really, that the central sort of argument of this article is really that but this whole neoliberal offensive has weakened the public sector and it's really, it's well past time to re reverse this kind of process. And of course, it goes more than just, it extends more than just the CSL. There's been all sorts of um, services that have been 
effectively privatised and sold off by a government, and it has not actually improved services at all. And in fact, it has actually kind of weakened um, re um, um, our services. So, yeah, I might open up comments. Maybe um, Zane and Chloe might have a, a few comments they'd like to make in response to some of the issues kind of raised by this. Yeah, we're just... Uh, it stands in contrast to Cuba, which is a a poor country, not at least of all because it's subject to a crippling economic embargo for, for decades from the USA, but Cuba, a relatively poor country, is nonetheless able to, to provide world-class um, public health care to all of its citizens. Uh, to, to look at the standard of health care that Cuba is able to provide all of its citizens despite being a poor country, and then to look at Australia, we, it, it's, it's, it just boggles the mind. There's, it's purely ideological that elements of the public health care system, including CSL, have been privatised. There's no need for it, and the only reason it has happened is so that private investors can make huge profits out of a public need, which is public health care. And it could have stayed in public ownership. And as the article says, we wouldn't just be shoveling money into private coffers for vaccines, which, as the article points out, were manufactured for decades as a not-for-profit service by CSL. It's just, it's criminal. It's like power stations. You know, the state governments build these things. All the, all the heavy, lifting, heavy lifting, all the investment is done by the public purse. The things are run as public assets, as a not-for-profit or, a, you know, a low-profit public asset for decades. And then they get hocked off to private investors, often for ridiculously low sums, like power stations in New South Wales that the Berejiklian government sold for literally a million dollars. Look, these things cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build, and then they get sold off for a million bucks. And then private owners just rake in the profits for years and decades to come. It's, it's robbery. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Zane, I don't have much to add, but it doesn't really fit in with the uh, stay, stay safe, stay open campaign. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, I'll just don't have no, much to add to that. That is a spot on point too, mm. because if, if state and federal governments, and I'm looking particularly here at the Liberal Party, if they were really serious about staying open then they would support reversing decades of cuts to public health so that public health is in a much better position to combat uh, virus outbreaks such as coronavirus and whatever else is in the pipeline in a warming world. State and federal governments would support reversing all the cuts to public health care and massively investing in improving those public services so that they are much better equipped to respond. And there was a, there's been a, 
very noticeable difference between the way New South Wales has responded to Corona versus Victoria. We, of course, had the second wave down here. I would argue that luck probably has <clears throat> a little bit to do with it, but what also has a hell of a lot to do with it is that the New South Wales health was not gutted in the same way that the Kennett government gutted the Victorian healthcare service and which successive Victorian governments didn't really reverse those cuts. Uh, New South Wales health in a, in a kind of context of neoliberal cuts to public healthcare, New South Wales health has remained in better shape, more integrated and better resourced than its counterparts in other states. And when coronavirus came along, that, that difference in the, the health of the healthcare system in New South Wales compared to other states was very evident in New South Wales's ability to conduct effective contact tracing and contain outbreaks. Whereas in other states like New South Wales, the overall poor shape of the healthcare system also manifested itself in the response to um, quarantine and uh, contact tracing. So uh, I think absolutely, if, mm. if right-wingers were serious about keeping the economy open, then they would support massively reinvesting in public healthcare so that public healthcare is much better equipped to stay on top of outbreaks like this and we don't have to fall back on lockdowns because things get out of control. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> Zane, they're kind of eating their own tail there. They're going to privatise um, healthcare, their workers, are, I mean, they need their workers to stay alive and keep making profits. So, yeah. Well, I think this has um, been kind of a useful discussion. It's also something we should um, be following up a bit more closely for um, future sort of discussions on Green Left Radio because, um, yeah, we, we had a bit of a discussion last um, in one of our previous programs about how we are in this kind of situation um, of, it was basically reflected in a Green Left article titled Racine Apartheid, where basically there's this whole context where all the kind of rich sort of global North countries are basically buying up all the best vaccines um, at the expense of countries in the global South. So that's, I think, this is, a I think, a, been a useful kind of discussion. Um, but I might go and I think we'll play a quick announcement um, and we'll move on to the kind of next part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. I want to drop food, not bombs. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food Not Bombs.
you're listening to um, Green Left Radio. And for the next part of the program, I was actually going to play a recording of a talk that we um, that I actually did at a public forum titled How Capitalism Creates Racism, which was organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance on the 9th of February. I imagine that, you know, the discussion that we're kind of, um, that we're sort of, and the points and the themes are kind of raised is actually quite timely, um, especially in the context of an earlier discussion we we're kind of having about Eddie McGuire. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoy listening, um, to this recording of a talk taken from the forum. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Thanks for that. Um, so I guess to start off, I would like to, just acknowledge um, that we are meeting on stolen land. Um, for me, it's the land of the Wandry of the Kulin Nation, and sovereignty has never been ceded. And when it comes to the issues that we are discussing at this forum, it is important to really note that we cannot really resolve the issues of systematic racism in this country or of racial oppression without achieving full justice and sovereignty for First Nations. And I guess to get, I guess part of what my sort of presentation is really wanting to sort of set a bit of context for this kind of discussion. Because one of the reasons we organised this forum was in response to a whole range of kind of issues. We saw the kind of massive kind of invasion day protests that happened on January 26, um, which attend, um, which continues to be bigger and bigger every year. Um, although this, um, and in fact, one of the amazing things about the invasion day protest this year, um, was it was in the context of the fact that there was no Australian day cer um, ceremony. And in, in some sense, we're essentially winning that almost that cultural war, um, against the right. And of course, there has been the ongoing struggle to free the refugees imprisoned in the Park Hotel, um, which, you know, has had a partial victory. But of course, that, ha that victory hasn't been um, accompanied with a dismantling of uh, the mandatory detention kind of regime. And I think, you know, we would... Um, we thought it would be good to have a discussion on where we think the roots of where racism comes from and how we can resist. Now... Racism generally kind of assumes um, that separate races of people exist with clearly kind of definable um, um, sets of social and physical characteristics and asserts that some of these races are superior to others. But I think one of the issues obviously with this is that biology cannot provide coherent definitions of what we um, usually identify as races. Um, you know, isolated genetic pools are... Oh, <laughs> um, 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 I, I, biology cannot provide coherent definitions of what are usually identified as races. Of course, isolated genetic pools are rare in reality and don't form the basis for racial categories in practice, even if generally consistent um, physical features discernible, they bear no real significance because social traits are not attached to skin or eye colour or the shape of the nose. Now, I guess... One of the sort of contexts, um, I guess, to start off, I guess, this discussion, those who have probably been following the AFL are probably aware of this whole saga engulfing the Collingwood Football Club in response to the um, Collingwood Football Club Do Better report. And this has kind of been revealing of the many incidents of systematic racism within the club. And what's worse, the report found that incidences of racism with the club were met with defensive reactions, basically refusing to acknowledge the impact of racism on the victims. 
and of course, I think we have to give a, a bit of tribute to the fact that there were of the the efforts of many brave players, such as Nicky Winmar, Michael Long, Adam Goods, um, Joel Wilkinson, who really it was through their efforts of standing up against this racial abuse that this report was even released and it's even seen in the media. And I think one of the kind of lessons about the story, of course, I know as I was writing this talk, Eddie Maguire hadn't actually resigned, but now he has resigned. But I think the story in terms of what I wrote here is pretty much the same. He's really, in a sense, escaping any real sense of responsibility of perpetrating racial abuse, or really, in some sense, he's not really facing any real consequences. And I think one of the amazing kind of things about this incident is even the kind of media is refusing to call it out for what it is. In fact, a lot of the kind of characterizations of Andy McGuire is that he, you know, he's just a buffoon, uh, he's just a silly man or comes from old time. Um, they're not actually calling him out for actually being racist at all, which I think is a real problem. Now, this is kind of like just one of the many kind of recent examples of racism um, that we find expressed through the institution of sports. But more than that, we find racial oppression and racism to be really present in all aspects of our political system. You know, through the torture of refugees on offshore detention camps, the drumming up of Islamophobia in the name of national security, to the genocidal policies that continue to dispossess the First Nations community. And of course, racial oppression extends to more than just the enacted um, politi uh, policies of our politicians. It is ever present in all aspects uh, in our society. It is often reinforced and pushed by the corporate media. And of course, it's reflected in the kind of unequal access to resources such as housing and healthcare. But I guess when it, when it, um, when it comes to how we explain these instances of racism, those in power often try to explain it as the failing of the individual, a case of prejudice, or in the case of their outright racist policies, such as their refugee policy, it is often justified under the gulfs of national security, defending the border regime, or even worse, you can often see that the often explanation, the often justification that politicians put for racist policies can often often be as basic as they justify it on the basis of the fact that um, their electorate um, happens to be racist. And of course, I think we should sort of reject those kind of explanations that try to blame um, voters um, for the fact that the government um, implements racist policies, because really the government is has a mature interest in supporting racist kind of policies. And I think one of the kind of things about what we've been wanting to talk about here is racism in its all forms is not necessarily just the result of prejudice. Uh, it has systematic roots that go back to the development of capitalism, the economic system that really dominates and governs our lives. And of course, capitalism being an economic system that relies on the accumulation of profit for private owners, for capitalism to be profitable on a worldwide scale, the ideological ideology of racism was central to its expansion in history. Because while racism and colonialism predates the development of capitalism, it was the system of capitalism that reinforced these ideologies because it served the economic interests and the global expansion of capital. Whether entire populations of people um, being systematically subjugated, whether it is done in order to clear people from their lands that are rich in natural resources, or really, or even to justify poor work, um, working conditions for different sections of society. 
we can see this kind of trend of capitalism throughout the world using racism to justify policies which undermine solidarity between workers or to pursue profit at the expense of ordinary people's interests and the environment. And I think going into the really specific um, example of where, where we find ourselves in so-called Australia, I think it's important to really note that the economic development of this country is bound up with, um, with racism and racist ideology from those in power. And of course, it all started um, when the first fleet um, sailed into Port Jackson on January 26, 1788, which singled the beginning of the dispossession and super exploitation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The genocide of the First Nations um, of, was justified on the basis of ideology by the colonialists known as Terranullius, based not only just on this sort of racial divide of, of racial superiority, but based on the distinction between civilization, essentially meaning private property, and savagery, absence of private property. And of course, this was the ideology that shaped the landscape of the colonial settler state that became known as Australia. But of course, it was more than just an ideology that shaped the, the, um, the political landscape. It played a political, um, a particular economic role in terms of laying the basis for capital accumulation and the development of modern day capitalism in Australia. And of course, the descendants um, and the benefactors of this early sort of capital accumulation and development led to the establishment of powerful pastoral agribusinesses and mining monopolies that still have a great deal of power and influence over our political system today. You just have to go and look at how, you know, who's actually in power. Like, for example, the nationals still wield a significant amount of power. Then, of course, you have um, the, the likes of... Um, Clive Palmer, and then of course you have the fact that all the major parties, from Labor to Liberal, are completely wedded into the into um, appealing to these mining monopolies. And of course, this is also evident in how Australia continues to be the domain of mining projects that have really the aim of dispossessing what remains of the of the First Nations community off their land and denying them rights, despite this a growing movement for sovereignty for Aboriginal people. Um, and their proud ongoing resistance to colonialism. And of course, going back a bit into kind of history, in this kind of period, I guess, of the early stages of capitalist development, we often start to see an expansion of primary industries in the 1800s. And of course, this is where we start to see other forms of racial oppression start to develop. And of course, there was, there were, um, it all kind of, it started off with, um, Australia, um, importing indentured Chinese, Indian and Canaan laborers, replacing European conflicts, uh, convicts. And of course, this was lauded by, you know, rural, um, employers associations and colonial politicians who really praised this as being, you know, because of the low levels of sustenance needed by such workers, um, this was seen as like a, a, a boost. But of course, this later on, what happened is during the gold rush period, which attracted large numbers of Chinese immigrants, these waves of Chinese immigrants threatened white colonialists with economic competition in comparison to their indentured predecessors. And of course, this was in the period that anti-Chinese racism in Australian history was adopted because basically in response to this economic competition, it was threatening the profits of a growing Australian capitalist class. And of course, what the governments did kind of in response to this um, was really they kind of laid the basis for the white Australian policy. Um, but of course, it was started off with the settler state um, adopting all sorts of exclusionary policies that exclude people on the basis of race.
And of course, you can kind of see kind of like the roots of kind of this history in terms of what we kind of even see in contemporary times. We have this kind of drumming up of hysteria against um, China in relation to this so-called trade war between the United States and China. And then you all have all these sort of discussions about who is, you know, Australian capital or China, your sing is made in China, you, you know, need to have your sing made in Australia, etc. I mean, all those kind of things that you kind of, those kind of tropes that we sort of often see in the kind of media, they are in, in some sense, they have a certain level of continuity with that, with, um, with how racism was, um, enacted in Australia. And of course, um, when we even, I think when we look at the history of racism globally, um, in history, there's often very much a real link between racial and oppression and the accumulation of capital. Just look at thinking about, you know, the whole, um, transnational slave trade, um, in many parts of the world. But of course, Australia very much has a similar, um, um context in history. And of course, even things like, which might not seem apparent, even the things like the policy of offshore detention often have an economic basis that's tied up with capitalism. Because, um, because those in power have a material interest in militarising the borders of their nation state to control who comes here and under what circumstances they come. And often, of course, um, the control of border is really, um, the controls of borders is often tied up with the control of who, which labour is allowed to come and which is not. And of course, we have from the Australian, white Australian policy in the early 20th century to the stolen generations to the detention regime of refugees, the settler state of Australia has always been profoundly racist and the origins really come down to its genocidal um, foundations. And again, because of this, even the question of Australian nationalism in a national um, identity um, is often based on racism, even, of course, it might not seem obviously overtly so, but I think it comes down really to kind of the foundations. And, of course, this is how the Australian nationalism is often used to divide and rule, um, like who's considered worthy of being Australian and who's got often not. And, of course, often within Australia today, we kind of see this, the kind of worst essences of racism is often directed against those who don't fit within the Australian national identity. And of course, there's often pushes for those who don't um, to assimilate and pledge unwavering allegiance to the Australian national state. Yet, coincidentally, it is often the most marginalised with, um, within capitalism that often find it hardest to become members of the Australian national identity, and that has to do with how our system is deliberately designed. Even today, um, racism as ideology um, lives on, continues to justify continuing racial oppression, institutionalised inequality based on racial crime. Contemporary forms of racial oppression that exist, which I won't go necessarily into all because I'm running low on time, such as discriminatory employment, shunning certain groups in the lowest paid, least secure job, scapegoating for the capitalist class, black thefts in custody. And of course, racism also plays a part in Australia's capital role in the exploitation and theft of mineral and energy resources from sovereign nations in the South Pacific today. And of course, we see that this ongoing role of racism as enacted by governments gives rise to far-right forces such as One Nation and the United Patriots Front. And I think given racism, um, to really conclude, given racism and its systematic links to our own economic system, any anti-racism campaign cannot simply just appeal to education or appeals for tolerance. 
often politicians will resort to these means as a solution to dealing with racism in our society. But to be effective anti-racist, we have to start with opposing the actual racist policies that are being carried out daily by our governments, starting with the denial of land rights for First Nations, discrimination in employment, racist law employment, the restrictions on the rights of migrants and so on. And of course, at the same time, racism is often rarely used as a weapon to divide and rule and um, and by thus who wield power in society. And the only way that we can be uh, overcome this is through building independent mass mobilisations that bring people together and build solidarity amongst the impressed. And of course, more than that, those who are at the margins of the capitalist system and the impact and our impact of racism have to be empowered to be part of this fight back against the rich and powerful. And of course, this is why the left should always openly challenge racism and racist ideology within our campaigning groups, because the impacts of racism limits the involvement of those most impacted by it in the political struggle. And of course, the issue of racism cannot necessarily be completely resolved until we deal with the capitalist system because capitalism is built on the oppressive social relations that undermine racism and be the rule of ever-shrinking but increasingly milking rule. It needs to divide the majority in order to continue its rule and to do this, it has to perpetrate racism and national chauvinism. And of course, to overcome this, we need to fight for a society that is driven by human need and not that of the, um, of the profits for the rich and the powerful. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. At 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Hey, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and yeah, you're just listening to actually a recorded talk by myself, Jacob Anjwafa, um, speaking at the forum, How Capitalism Creates Racism. Now, I'll just go, I was going to go and play another talk, um, just a short speech um, from the forum by Lavinia, Lavinia Trajar. Um, who is a migrant workers centre organiser, and yep, her speech was also part of the How Capitalism Creates Racism Forum. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoy um, listening. Hello everyone. Um, I'll, I'll also like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land. Uh, their leaders past, present and emerging, this land was stolen and never ceded and always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd like to start by, uh, with a question. So can we challenge racism without challenging the current system? So racism uh, is fundamentally about, in, it's, uh, it's, people would say it's fundamentally about individual behavior, but I would like to argue that it is not that true. Although Often that's how people experience it. It has been built in, into the institutions of Australian capitalism from its origins in invasion, dispossession, and genocide against the First Nation population. For example, even if by some miracle, every individual races change their views, the major forms of racism, racist disadvantage that Aboriginal people experience from appallingly low life expectancy to the worst housing, worst education, ill health, joblessness, and access to government services would go on. 
nor would the extra attention that they receive from government, the murderous police, jails, courts, and child removal departments would disappear. This racism is a central part to capitalism because the system that benefits from racism is capitalism. It's a process of divide and rule. Establishing division within the working class is a fundamental to ruling class attempt to keep control over the society in which they constitute only in tiny min minority and making the profits from the labors of the majority. Constructing an enemy is also important for prosecuting imperialist wars. This also explains why the targets of Australian racism have shifted over the decades, depending on the needs of the rule, ruling class at the time to time. When the white Australia policy was introduced in 1901, most Chinese workers suffered. Most of you would have known the, how the Italians have been targeted in uh, late 19th century. Today, it's First Nations, Muslims, Africans, and refugees who are the prime targets of anti-migrant racism. Vilifying these groups to justify Australia's involvement in occupation and war has resulted in the anti-terror legislation that has strengthened the state's power to spy and intimidate. If the refugees can be imprisoned, and brutalized, so too can poor and workers too. Racism is not purely for a social phenomenon. It has a specific economic use. Society in which racism is more pronounced having general low wages and poorer working conditions. For example, in the US South, historical divisions between black and white workers created downward pressure on wages for all the workers and have co contributed to the confidence of the bosses to ruthlessly exploit both black and white workers. To this day, workers in US South are most poorly unionized and low paid in the country. Of the five United States, there, there are no minimum wage laws. All are located in South. This is not a product of retrograde views of your average racist, but a legacy of slavery, segregation, and the prevalence of racism that has weakened the workers' movement and held down working conditions. Those on precarious visa toil in some of the most exploited industry in the country. As an organizer from Migrant Worker Center, I have witnessed so many refugees, asylum seekers, backpackers, international students have been paid very less than the minimum wage. And they are subjected to intimidation. They are sacked if they spoke up or joint union and under constant threat of deportation. Racism and national borders makes this situation possible. Uh, it's a windfall for a bosses, but it's a disaster for all the working class people, both migrant workers and those struggling to defend hard won gains. It's a structural element that links racism and capitalism and over which most people have absolutely have no control but it does not necessarily mean people will swallow everything and anything that is spoon-fed to them. In recent years, there has been mounting opposition to Australia Day with tens and thousands of marching uh, in, for Invasion Day rallies. Educating some people would not, uh, would, would not address or would not challenge the racism at all. It, it, has, it, it won't build houses for poor people. It won't give jobs for many workers but organizing workers to overcome racial division and stand together against their bosses 
and government is what helps sideline racist ideas. It is not an accident that high points of anti-racist struggle in Australia have coincided with the upsurges in the struggle in work, in which workers mostly most unclearly see that the boss are their real enemies and only the racism that undermines their struggle as working class. After all, working class is multiracial and multiethnic, and our strength is our unity. This is how we can overcome racism and the system that perpetuates it, a system which money and power matter more than human lives. Thank you. to Green Left Radio, and it is time for the activist calendar. Now, I'm not sure, there has been been quite a number of events sort of happening, um, but I guess the first kind of event I want to highlight is the Freedom Fridays organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism are still um, going, and they're kind of happening every Friday. And it's, it's going to be, the one that's going to be on today is going to be on, I think, at 5.30 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. I might get the quick day, but I think 5.30 p.m. it is. And it's just outside the kind of Park Hotel. And, of course, there's still daily protests happening outside the Park Hotel, 3 p.m. every weekend, 5 p.m. every weekday. Um, there's still refugees who are held imprisoned in the Park Hotel. Um, we don't know when they're going to be released. And so I think it's important to sort of keep up the pressure going. Um, I'll pass it on to Chloe because Chloe has another next event. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. The Refugee Action Collective has called a big rally this Saturday, uh, 2 p.m. at the State Library. Free all the Medivac refugees, let them stay permanently. Uh, it's at the State Library, so please come along, bring your, your friends, um, support this rally. Um, we need to keep uh, keeping the pressure up, like Jacob said, to release um, all these refugees who are being um, held for political reasons, um, they are innocent. And we have had a, a victory um, in the last couple of weeks where 63 refugees were released, uh, but some still remain uh, on onshore detention. And we are fighting for all refugees, not just medevac refugees, all refugees to be released immediately uh, with full rights um, and to be settled here permanently. Word. And then on next Saturday, the 20th of February at 2pm at the State Library, there's a rally for a fairer NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, and the demands of that rally are, number one, stop independent assistance. Two, free medical and allied health services for people applying for the NDIS. Three, stop privatisation and expand public disability services. Four, scrap the NDIA's staffing cap. And five, all data from the first IA trial of November 2018 to April 2019 to be made public. And there's a coalition of different groups, uh, people from the Labor Party, including Bill Shorten, the shadow NDIS minister, um, Jordan Steele-John, Green Senator, Paul Healy, the Health and Community Services Union Secretary, and uh, more um, speakers as well. And that's been endorsed by a range of community groups and unions. So, uh, yes, get along to that. And the rally will have Auslan interpreters present. So, yes, it's uh, the rally itself will be as accessible as possible. Get amongst it.
And the next uh, just events I want to sort of promote, um, there's possibly going to be more happening events, but I just haven't been able to see any sort of listings for what's happening. So just on the 27th of March, um, there's going to be a special Green Left 30th anniversary event with um, Kavita Krishna. Um, this is going to be um, an online kind of event, um, basically marking the 30th anniversary of Green Left. And, um, yeah, it will be featuring Kavita, who is the leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist liberation, Leninist Liberation, and all, um, and basically talking about the whole um, mass movement um, that's engulfing India with the farmers' movement. And, of course, um, the other thing just to note about this event, it's going to be held via Zoom at 7pm in uh, Victoria. You can get the details on, on how to register uh, on the greenleft.org.au website. But on another note, um, because green, we've sort of made this in last year, um, last week's program, um, but Green Left is currently going through its kind of 30th anniversary and we are looking for messages of solidarity and support um, from anyone. Um, and so if you have any um, messages you would like to send, uh, please um as an individual, uh, or not, or if you represent any organisations, um, please send them at editor at greenleft.org.au and and um, yeah, give your kind of message of solidarity, like you know, say write about you know what Green Left has meant to you uh, in terms of even even what we cover on the Green Left Radio program because the Green Left Radio program is pretty much another wing of the Green Left kind of publication. Um, so yeah. Um, send your solidarity messages to the editor at greenleft.org.au by email. And, and of course, you can also try and get in contact with us on social media. And we're also encouraging people to use, if you do make a message of support on your, or your social media platforms, use the hashtag greenleft30. Okay. Um, now, I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement, um, and then we might move on to the next and maybe last part of our program. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people, the people. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people, the people. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the next part of our program, um, I was thinking we'll play an excerpt of the Big Tech versus Democracy um, episode of the Green Left Show. Um, the Green Left Show is a new project of Green Left, um, which is basically airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. And basically they're, they're panel kind of discussions and podcasts that basically cover the kind of different sort of arguments um, and politics kind of of the day and this episode um, features guests such as Lizzie O'Shea who is the lawyer and writer and chair of the digital rights work, Alex Wangewoons who is an author of Capitalism and the, and the Enchanted Screen, Myths and Allergies of the Digital Age and Gary Gunberg, activist and writer with Green Left. Um, so you can actually find this um, the full episode available online on greenleft.org.au and I Recommend if you enjoyed what you listened of this program, I recommend kind of checking it out. Um, but yeah, I'll just play the first 15 minutes of um, the making episode, which goes through, I guess, the, um, the topic around understanding the media code, government funding um, for media, 
and, of course, the Greens' proposal for a publicly owned search engine. So that's what the program is. That's what the experts I'm going to be playing will cover. So hope you enjoy, listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community Radio. Hello, this is Alex Bainbridge from Green Left. I'd like to welcome you all to this third episode of our new Green Left show, where we're going to be tackling a range of uh, topical issues. Today we're dealing with big technology and democracy. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge that we're filming this show on stolen Aboriginal land. Uh, I'm coming to you from Jagger and Turbul country, but all around the country this is stolen land. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and we pledge our solidarity with ongoing struggles for justice. Today we have three guests who should be uh, making up for a very interesting discussion. We have uh, Gaudi Gandabir, who's an activist and writer with Green Left. Also Lizzie O'Shea. She's a lawyer and writer and also the chair of Digital Rights Watch. And Alex Warnsborough. He's the author of Capitalism and the Enchanted Screen, Myths and Allegories of the Digital Age. He's also a casual lecturer in screen theory. Uh, anybody who's turned on the internet this week has probably seen advertisements from Google who are complaining that the government's proposed law would break the internet. And they've also likened the Google empire to a, you know, what it'd be like for a friend to recommend a coffee shop to another friend. Uh, can you perhaps uh, begin, Gody, by just talking to us about the latest news in this case and also your views on this issue? Sure. Um, so the latest news is that Google and Scott Morrison have um, uh, basically begun to discuss um, actually accepting the code. Um, so Scott Morrison was in contact with Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, and they have said that um, they are recommitting to Australia and would not um, hold their search functions. And I believe that the letter um, written by the Australia, uh, Google Australia CEO, Mel Silva, that was um, an open letter to the public, has been taken down. So this is basically what the government is the government legislation is going to mandate that Google and Facebook pay a certain amount of money to uh, news organisations uh, when they uh, re- you know, when they post links to to news organisations, and supposedly this is to pay for for journalism. Now, uh, taking money off the big tech giants doesn't seem like a bad idea to me, and uh, supporting journalism seems like a good thing in general. But I wonder, Lizzie, maybe do you have any comments about the issues involved in this? I mean, like, is this Scott Morrison accidentally doing the right thing for a change, or is this Scott Morrison taking the side of uh, News Corporation against uh, Google and Facebook? Or how would you see the issues, Lizzie? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about this because I think a lot of the mainstream news coverage of this is quite confusing and uh, wrong-footed, in part because the mainstream media organisations have a lot to benefit if this code is passed. So this came out of the ACCC's review into the big tech platforms, which had a lot of great recommendations actually within it to kind of in- improve the ecosystem in which we occupy in the digital age. Um, it was, I think, perhaps the least appealing of the possible recommendations. So it's been on the cards for a while. And I can completely understand the need to address the decline in media and in particularly investigative journalism that we've seen as a result of advertising dollars moving away from newsrooms and news organisations towards big tech platforms. You know, regional journalism has suffered, lots of specialist beats like court reporting and uh, science reporting, I think, could be improved. All these things are a real problem. 
My worry is that this particular proposal to essentially set up a system of private transfers between uh, big tech platforms and media organisations is not the solution. If we're worried about journalism, we should be funding it properly, including from government at an arm's length, um, in an arm's length manner. If we're worried about big tech platforms making too much money, we should be taxing them. And if we're worried about the implications of a data extractive economy where your personal information is mined and then used uh, to, to make money for advertisers, then I think we need to, to regulate privacy better and improve people's right to uh, take control of their information. So what I see here is a situation where Scott Morrison was kind of keen to appease his mates at News Corp, who've been a big driver of this particular legislative proposal. Uh, and it's very easy to give big tech platforms a kick uh, because lots of people feel uh, very strongly that they take advantage, that they make too much money, and they don't like what online life looks like when it's dominated by these platforms. So I think there's a third way there, which we can talk about more if you're interested, but that's where I'd start in terms of trying to understand what's at play. I mean, one thing that just sort of springs to my mind, if if, uh, if these news organisations like News Corp and Channel 9, whatever, get a big increase in funding, does anybody actually believe that the regional newspapers are going to open up again? Does anybody actually believe that uh, that, that full quotum of, of, of dollars will be passed over to you know, to actually you know, investigative journalism to, to highlight government votes, etc.? One thing, which is you're exactly right to point that out. The other thing I'd say is that the ABC and the SBS have also been included in the proposal as a last-minute addition, and there's a real question as well whether that extra source of revenue might not be a source for the expansion of those platforms, but in fact a justification for further cutting their budgets by government. Yeah, that's a good point. Alex, do you have any comments that you'd like to uh, to, to make on this issue? Uh, well, firstly, I, I just want to say, uh, you know, about, you know, uh, Thank you uh, for the, the, the wonderful sort of uh, critique offered of News Corp and for sort of ghoulish um, old media gods. Um, in a way, I, I think there is a lot of opposition uh, from the old media monopolies to the new media. So, I mean, obviously someone like Rupert Murdoch, for example, made his money by denigrating actual print journalism and replacing it with a sort of tabloid version of it. Um, and this is, you know, he's already in a way responsible for, for decline in investigative journalism and for and, and sort of pushing investigative tactics on celebrity gossip, effectively. <laughs> so investigative journalist techniques end up just, you know, uh, demeaning um forms of public knowledge and understanding of actual complex issues. Um, so I completely agree that this is not a good step, and it seems a little bit too little, too late. Um, I think the death of print, sadly, has already kind of occurred, um, and it would be great if it could be revitalised um, for all for reasons that seem very pertinent now regarding sort of fake news and so on, which isn't to say that the old news forms weren't also propagandistic. They clearly were. One only needs to read Noam Chomsky on the subject. But I think that uh, very, very often there has been this lack of sense of authority and where to go for news and so on. Um, I would, of course, recommend that people go to the green left uh, for the news. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, you know, that would only be the only additions. I mean, I thought it was just beautifully summed up uh, by Lizzie and yeah, look, uh, look, I'm actually for encouraging people to uh, to to check out the Green F more. Well, I think there's, I think there is a bigger. That's not the whole answer to this question. I mean, I think even even a country like Sweden, as I understand it, 
uh, any publication with 2,000 or more subscribers has got an automatic uh, mandate by the government to fund a certain number of journalists for that organisation. And that's not some you know, mad socialist utopia. This is you know, social democratic capitalist Sweden, um, assuming I've got the, 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 that, that fact correct. That's my understanding. Uh, there's, different, there's certainly plenty of options for the government to be uh, both increasing the funding for community media and also public broadcasting. And I think especially in the case of the ABC over the last uh, decade or two, we've seen a very sharp curtailment of, or I guess a intense government pressure, uh, to, which has moved the ABC in a, in a much more right-wing direction than was the case uh, in, in the past. And uh, we need democratisation of public broadcasting. So at the moment, the minister's got quite considerable control as to, as to who is the, who's on the board of the ABC, and the ABC board throws their weight around. Uh, so we need actually democratisation of, of public broadcasting, in, in my view. Sorry. I was just going to add one more point. So I think Alexander made a really good point about the decline of print journalism in general. And the other aspect of this code that probably doesn't get as much attention is that if you're a certain kind of news organisation and it's defined in the proposed legislation, so you have to be a particular size, have a particular amount of revenue, so Greenleaf might well be excluded because it doesn't meet the revenue requirements, notwithstanding they might contribute to a diverse media environment. So there's that problem there. But the other thing that comes out of this is if you're a media organisation, you get access to information about how algorithms work on these search platforms. So you can essentially create a form of media that's optimised for how these platforms work. And that, I think, is not what we need more of. We do not need more of the Daily Mail type journalism. That's not what's missing in the current media landscape. And what it really strikes me is, is an example of media organisations not criticising the data-centric model of these platforms, but in, in fact saying they want to get in on it, that they want to be able to optimise their own platform for revenue-making using data about their, their people who arrive at their site, which is something they also will get access to under the code, as well as how any changes to the algorithm that might affect who gets to visit their site or where their links appear in the search platform. So it's really entrenching a form of online engagement with public discussions and news, which is one of the things many people find objectionable about this current moment. And I think that doesn't get enough attention. The last thing I'll say is, um, if you are a technically minded person, you know, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, has actually filed a submission against this code because at a very basic level, it undermines that fundamental principle of an open and free web, which is you have the capacity to link freely between websites. Now, you know, the Daily Mail, or I should say the Daily Telegraph can put up a paywall if it wants to, but you're not charging for linking itself, the act of linking, which is a fundamental part of the free and open web. So if, even if you're a technical person who only objects to this on the basis of um, the structure of the internet is going to be put into jeopardy, I think you've got a very strong argument there alone, let alone the other layers of, of media and, and journalism and, and, and engagement in public life. Okay, let's move on to the question of uh, the public ownership of a search engine. The Greens have raised that this week, and I'd actually just like to play a clip now from Sarah Hanson-Young being interviewed by the ABC. People need to be able to have free and open access to that. But replacing, but replacing one corporation like Google with another big corporation like Microsoft yeah. doesn't solve the problem here. Sure, so but we're a, not... a bit of a different situation comparing libraries to this, though, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the logistics of this, how cheap and easy would it actually be to create a new search engine? Why not let the market respond and leave it to the likes of, of Bing and others? 
Well, what we've seen is that the market has failed here. The reason we've got this intervention being debated in the parliament right now is because the market has actually failed. Google has become far too powerful, so powerful that they can threaten the parliament, threaten the Australian community and say, if we don't get the laws we want, Mm. we're going to pull the plug. We should never have allowed a big corporation to become so powerful. So... Maybe, okay, Gody, let's come back to you. What's, uh, what comments would you make about this uh, proposal from the Greens? Look, this is, you know, uh, I guess a step forward into basically fighting what I find is, and, and I'm quoting from Michael Quet's uh, article regarding the di- digital colonization um, by these big tech corporate giants on behalf of, of the U.S. And so I think that, you know, as long as we can, we see these tech organizations um, basically um, dominating the economic sphere in in terms of um, that what we see on the internet, what uh, what search engines we use, control their architectural design, um, and engage in sur- surveillance capitalism, and actually act as a conduit to uh, the U.S. state surveillance system, um, we uh, as Australians won't really have any say over um, the, the search engines and the, and the search functionalities that we use. Now, this basically the U.S. Um, prior to um, this conversation with uh, Scott Morrison and Sundar Pichai, U.S. government came in and stepped in and said, hey, Australia, you should scrap this proposed law. I mean, it's implicative of how much of a threat um, our um our, you know, governance, our self-governance would have on the U.S. and these um, big tech corporations. So uh, the Greens new law is essentially, you know, a really good alternative uh, to what um, Google and Facebook were have been offering. I mean, they also they had offered an alternative that was um, called like the Google News Showcase or the Facebook news uh, news feed that they already, I think, implemented in the UK where aggregators would curate a list of um, uh, art, uh, news articles on a daily basis based on some algorithm um, and user interest to um, basically kind of uh, create like a kind of like a ministry of truth for, for news. And so what, I think what we do need to do is what the Greens are kind of proposing and saying, well, if these companies can come, come and go as they choose, make, you know, threats to um, take away a key infrastructure that date for information that Australians use, then we don't need to tolerate these threats. And we can, um, and the Greens proposal is essentially a way to bring that kind of autonomy back to the Australian internet user. Um, and yeah, so, uh, so yeah. And if you, and to, to go into a little bit of what the Greens propose is that they would like to, um, explore investing, um, in a Australian, um, I guess government funded, uh, search engine. Um, and essentially that kind of leads leads down the path of, okay, well, um, you know, we will be offering um, 
like it could it could go towards the you know the free software movement or the decentralization of the internet. So it's kind of a step forward to getting autonomy um, for internet users back into their own hands. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Now um, you're just listening to an excerpt of um, uh, the, um, the latest episode of the Green Left. Um, show, which is focusing on big tech, the government's proposed media core and Google's threat to abandon Australia. Now, this, um, that was only an expert of, um, of the, of the program. You can actually listen to the full episode, which is actually goes for an hour and we might play other parts maybe of the program at maybe a later time, maybe next week. Um, but for now, yeah, you can listen to the full thing if you go up on the Green Left website at greenleft.org.au. Now, I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement, and we're probably getting into um, the end of our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1300 655 06. Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. one 655 one 655 The Reading, Writing, Hotline. A 3CR supporter. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and we are getting to the end of the program. I'd like to thank all our listeners um, for tuning in this week, and um, we'll um, see you all next week um, when we go return back to live-to-air broadcasts. Yes, see you next week. Keep it staunch. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Okay. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.